There are many ways people listen to Vision, including in cars through the Vision app. The Vision app is compatible with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. So if you have mobile coverage, you can stream any of Vision's live radio channels in crystal clear quality and enjoy a growing range of on-demand podcasts all on the go. There are other ways to connect your phone to your vehicle speakers too. You can see detailed instructions when you Google ways to listen to Vision. However and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our privilege today to reconnect with a Christian leader in Africa who has been a pioneering missionary to nations like Mozambique, Angola and Sudan. He knows what it means to be in danger for the advancement of the gospel. In the course of his missionary activities, Peter's been ambushed, he's come under aerial and artillery bombardments, he's been stabbed, he's been shot at, he's been beaten by mobs, arrested and imprisoned. And, but for the past 35 years, Peter Hammond has been a missionary in Africa. Dr. Peter Hammond is the author of more than a dozen books on topics ranging from Islam, persecution, slavery, missions, apologetics, history and family life. He's also the founder of Frontline Fellowship. Christian Action and the Reformation Society. Our privilege to welcome back to 2020, Dr. Peter Hammond. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Peter, since we spoke last, and it's uh, three or four years now since we did have that opportunity, the work that you were doing in places like Sudan, uh, you've seen there's incredible changes that have happened there, and I think something worthy of, of our attention. What's happened in Sudan that's created all sorts of freedom for the gospel? It's actually unprecedented, and I must say, uh, even though we've been working in Sudan for over 27 years and been praying very intensely, we didn't expect to see such dramatic changes. So, the, the situation when I started going to stand in 1995 was just about one of the worst places on earth. Uh, regular bombing, scorched earth, uh, all kinds of atrocities, persecution church, no missionaries allowed, no fly zones, uh, literally uh, um, Bibles having to be smuggled. It, it, it was very severe. And uh, uh, there wasn't a hospital for five million people in Equatoria and, and things like this, absolutely hideous. And the changes, the dramatic change, obviously in answer to prayer and as a result of God's mercy and grace. But uh, we've seen such changes that, for example, uh, the moment Donald Trump got into office in the White House, he made some kind of deal with Sudan saying, I don't know what you want. You want uh, end of sanctions and to be taken off the terrorist watch list. Um, I'll tell you what I want. No more bombing, no more scorched earth, no more uh, aggressive actions in Nuba Mountains of South Kordofan or the Blue Nile or, or in uh, Darfur. And lo and behold, since 2017, there was no more ground offensives, bombings, uh, all hostile actions. And there was the odd um, the drunken soldier doing something. But basically speaking, there was no more offensives. And we started in 2017 to be able to take in vast amounts more Bibles than before. But in, in 2018, the situation dramatically improved even more, and suddenly the schools were being opened, wells were being dug, and the communities are coming down to New Mountain. We could actually reach these people, this island of Christianity and Sea of Islam, more effectively and do 
in-depth uh, ministry without any harassment. There was no bombings, there was no attacks, it was great. Well, in 2019, the people rose up and overthrew the government of Omar al-Bashir. Now, he had been in power since uh, 1989. So for 30 years, dictator, jihad, one-party dictatorship, all that sort of thing. And now suddenly, they had a, a military civilian council uh, that, that ran the country. Omar al-Bashir was arrested, put on trial for corruption, uh, genocide and all kinds of war crimes and so on. And they're talking about handing him over to The Hague for the International uh, Criminal Court of Justice. So all sorts of things changed. Now, in the last two years, we've been hearing all sorts of strange things like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, no more flogging, no more cutting off hands and feet, no more apostasy law where uh, a Muslim would be executed if he converted to Christianity, for example. So un unprecedented opportunities and as a result we've been able to take in hundreds of thousands more bibles books christian school textbooks and uh, do leadership training pastors seminars uh, school ministries hundreds of schools in new mountains which were not able to operate during the 50 years of war and persecution uh, so uh, we just praise god sudan is like a different country and it's moved off it used to be in the top 10, sometimes the top three of the most persecuted uh, areas in the world with the least amount of religious freedom. It's totally off the charts. Um, it's it's no longer uh, even in the top 20 uh, of places where Christians are persecuted. And we know of no new incidents of persecution in the last three years in, uh, the, in the Nuba Mountains or in Sudan, which is extraordinary. And you're talking about Sudan and not just South Sudan, uh, where things were very, very tough, very hard to get the gospel into Sudan. And you're saying now there's unprecedented opportunities. Uh, that former leader, uh, Omar al-Bashir, he's now standing trial for some of the crimes allegedly committed under his leadership. Yes, so South Sudan broke away in 2011. So from the 9th of July 2011, the youngest country in the world, South Sudan is independent, free. And while they've had some problems, they've got unprecedented religious freedom. And so, yes, we're able to do lots of things there. There's a Bible society now in Juba. We're able to organize for our friends there to collect Bibles, literally from the Bible society, things that you just couldn't have imagined before, uh, Christian textbooks in the schools. But yes, I've been talking about Northern Sudan or, or Sudan, uh, especially in the New Mountains of Sudan, which is a Christian enclave that's been subject to some of the worst persecution over the last 50, 60 years. But now, even in Sudan, even in Khartoum itself, uh, the capital of Sudan, there is uh, unprecedented religious toleration. So, major answer to prayer. I think this should give us a lot of hope because many times we often think things only going to get worse and worse, but that's not so. This year, we're celebrating 40 years of frontline fellowship. And I look back and I see when we started work in Mozambique, which was a communist country. And back in 1982, when I started my ministry into communist Mozambique, there were no missionaries allowed, no Bibles allowed, nobody under 18 allowed in church, nobody under 18 allowed to be baptized. Situation was severe. It was the killing fields. And I wrote a book in the killing fields of Mozambique. And yet we've seen Mozambique open up the gospel since 1994. Tremendous religious freedom. Christianity has moved from being less than 4% Protestants in Mozambique to 34% would call themselves Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical Christians. So the, the transformation Sudan, phenomenal, transformation Mozambique, phenomenal, Angola is wide open to gospel. Zambia, which used to be a one-party state, not only open, but now sending out missionaries, dedicated itself to be a Christian nation, even constitutional amendment to that effect. 
And of course, the whole of Eastern Europe opened up to the gospel. The Berlin Wall came down in 1989. And so just in our 40 years in the mission, we've seen so many answers to prayer. And the situation in the mission field changed dramatically in many places for the good in such a way we couldn't have imagined. And I must say, our faith wasn't that large when we were praying for the Lord to work in these countries. Well, isn't it so good to hear of such amazing transformation that's happening in nations? And there is a special connection for Australians uh, to the people of the Nuba Mountains. And so for those who are in South Sudan, uh, because it was Australian missionaries that took the gospel to the Nuba Mountains around 100 years ago. So for listeners in Australia, we are inspired to hear that there is good news and that there is an openness now to the gospel and that religious freedom that you say is unprecedented. Let me come back to you for a moment here, Peter, because some people will be amazed, uh, some surprised that someone would want to go and work in these most dangerous lands. And I mentioned in the introduction that you'd faced uh, all sorts of uh, persecutions, even being stabbed and tortured. Uh, people might be wondering, what is it that actually motivates your heart to work in these areas? I was converted on the 3rd of April, 1977, I was brought up in a secular family uh, in Rhodesia, war-torn country. And uh, so as a schoolboy, I was brought up in a country with landmines on the roads and the school teachers carrying machine guns in areas where ambushes could take place and so on. But uh, by God's grace, I was confronted with the gospel at age 17. And I was called to missions on the very night I was converted. And the first missionary who came past uh, our church Francis Grimm, who planted hospital Christian fellowships in 100 countries of the world. I joined his mission, so my first missionary experience was with hospital Christian fellowship. I was called up to my, do my military service, conscription, two years national service, and I started Bible study and a prayer fellowship in the army, inspired also by hospital Christian fellowship, having the vision of winning doctors and nurses to Christ in the hospitals to be ongoing witnesses to the patients through the years. So I saw the need to start a Bible study and prayer fellowship in the army. Well, out of that Bible study and prayer fellowship grew Frontline Fellowship. As we prayed to Operation Board, and we were praying for the surrounding nations around us, which were our enemies. We were at war with them. They were at war with us. Mozambique, Angola, for example, Zimbabwe. And uh, God put on our heart these countries, these Frontline countries. They called themselves the Frontline States. We were in the Frontline Army, and hence Frontline Fellowship. Are going into areas where the gospel is restricted, restricted access areas, to smuggle in Bibles, to help persecuted churches, to care for those caught up in the crossfire of the wars, and to try and reach our enemies for Christ. And so I've had the privilege of winning communists to Christ, baptizing communist soldiers, uh, starting Bible study groups. In fact, just this uh, year, we've just finished this book on 40 years of frontline, frontline behind enemy lines for Christ. And so I've been able to put in this 400 and 40-odd pages, book with hordes of pictures, documenting so many of the answers to prayer and, and uh, the blessings that God has given us in this adventure of discipleship. So I wouldn't have expected to have gone the route that God's taken us on, but what an adventure. What a privilege. And we'll give an address where listeners can connect with you. And I mentioned you'd written something like a dozen books. Listeners might want to access some of those. And uh, I had a look through a whole bunch of things that you've sent through to me over the years. And uh, it looks pretty fabulous uh, dealing with history and uh, a whole lot of things that are, have been developing not only in Africa, but in global events, uh, world affairs. Uh, Peter, you've t- traveled a lot even uh, on motorcycle. 
Uh, is motorcycle one of your favourite ways of getting into tough areas? I mean, uh, you can't carry a lot of Bibles on a motorcycle, but it's a way to really break in behind the lines, isn't it? Yes, for the first 20 years of this mission, motorbikes were my primary form of transport, and behind the lines it's very useful. Off-road scramblers can lift them up, put them into uh, little boats and get them across rivers. Uh, Sometimes in mountains, passes, it's very useful. And with saddlebags and a big backpack and so on, we we can actually uh, transport a fair amount uh, on motorbikes. Uh, My very first mission to Mozambique was with a thousand Gospels, a hundred New Testaments and the 16 millimeter uh, Jesus form, uh, four reels, and uh, all that could fit in a motorbike. So it's amazing what you can actually fit on or very heavily laden. And uh, yes, motorbikes uh, have been versatile and I've been able to lift them up and put them into aircraft and uh, fly in uh, to, for example, uh, South Sudan, and we've been able to use motorbikes on the ground a lot. But over the years, we've gotten to carry so much more. We're averaging 100 tonnes of Bibles and books that we just written freely every year. Some years it's been over 200 tonnes. That's Bibles and books freely distributed in sometimes up to 100 languages. Uh, so uh, it's um, it's been necessary to now use full trucks and trailers and so on. So... Um, I, I kind of miss the motorbikes. Peter, are you being supported by groups all over the world? Uh, is there a particular nation that comes to mind that is supporting the good work that you're doing? Because uh, hundreds of tons worth of Bibles, uh, that doesn't come cheaply either. Uh, what sort of support are you getting from around the world? Well, we are a faith mission. We've never done any formal Uh, fundraising at all. Uh, I've never taken up an offering in 40 years of this mission, and um, we depend on the free will support of God's people who believe in this work, and we concentrate on the work and and the teaching of Hudson Taylor, quite an inspiration. God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply, and uh, uh, we try to concentrate on the work. Now, by God's grace, I've got some friends who are authors who donate many of their books to us, uh, and uh, there are ministries that gather up Bibles and books in their areas and ship them out to us. And, of course, that's normally in English, sometimes French and Portuguese, which is very helpful. But uh, when it comes to indigenous language Bibles, well, you know, nobody's going to have those lying around in America or Australia. Uh, so uh, those need to be specially printed. And interestingly enough, most of the Bibles we've got printed in the indigenous languages, like the Moral Bible uh, for South Sudan, the first 10,000 copies were printed in Singapore. And so Singapore... Taipei, South Korea, those are the places where most of the Bibles are printed because they do it the cheapest and, I must say, best quality, including shipping all the way to Mombasa for us to get across with a flown or trucked in to Sudan. So, uh, yes, we don't have any major supporters. It's, um, you know, the odd person here and then, uh, a congregation here and a, a widow there. So um, it's amazing what God provides, but a lot of the books and Bibles are sent to us to freely distribute. Others are special projects, and uh, we praise God for our supporters because it, there's no human explanation for how we've managed to do what we've done in the last 40 years because we're not exactly following a business model. This is a, a faith mission, and I don't have any marketing in my um, ministry whatsoever. We just focus on the work. Before we go any further, Peter, uh, there is a sense, isn't there, in which in some ways you're specially prepared uh, to do what you do in mission. 
Uh, are we in the West? Do you think a little bit uh, soft and not afraid, and, and a little bit too afraid to take a risk and go into danger zones? What's your encouragement here, or do you do you actually say uh, you know better to stay out of it all? Well, you know, God is sovereign, and um, those of us who've been born again, uh, life uh, on Earth is not uncertain. You're safe in battle as you are in bed, if you're in the sense of God's will. And uh, to me, it's it's wonderful to know that I'm immortal until my work on earth is done. And uh, it's it's a tremendous thing to be freed from the the fear of death when you know where you're going and when you have this absolute assurance. So when I was converted, I came from a background where my father and my brother had been in the military. My dad fought all six years of the Second World War in the 8th Army in North Africa. And uh, it seemed every male member of our family going back for generations uh, were in uniform and, and the military going back to Napoleonic Wars and, and before. So I'd always wanted to be in the army. I wanted to be military. I wanted to uh, do my bit to fight against communism. And Rhodesia was standing uh, in the gap fighting against uh, communism. So that was my background. But when I got converted, all this got redirected to missions. And it seemed natural that one of the first things I had to do when I left school was go into the military, do my, my two years national service, that that became a mission field. And as we were exposed to the persecution going on in neighboring Angola, for example, we'd ask the local people, what can we do to help you? And these starving, hungry, sometimes crippled people said, Biblia, Biblia. And when we brought Bibles out of ammunition packs and gave them Bibles in their languages, they fell on their knees and cried and wept and hugged us and kissed us both cheeks and, and said, this is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for, the word of God in my own language. And not since the Cubans burnt my Bible have I had the word of God for myself. Uh, this is the greatest gift. And so uh, this is really where our, our mission has been focused. And I couldn't help but be focused on the restricted access areas and the war zones because there were a lot of them. And South Africa and Rhodesia were surrounded by communist countries with Soviet bases and Cuban military and, and churches being burned and pastors being killed, even crucified on occasion on the front of the churches. All sorts of horrors were going on in the 1980s. It was the height of the Cold War. Uh, interesting, today people are all uh, cheering Gorbachev, um, but uh, we remember when his troops were doing some terrible atrocities against Christians and uh, Mozambique and Angola and Ethiopia. But uh, interesting, the world's media has always got its own agenda. Uh, we, we are not going to make an idol of any human being. Uh, there's only one king, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ that we bow before. So our mission, uh, grew out of this Bible study and prayer fellowship with a particular vision to help those who are suffering in these war-torn areas. And yes, um, I must say, it seemed natural to me to do, and, and even my, my wife was brought up in Europe with her father being a missionary to Eastern Europe, and she is going on missions with her dad into countries like Romania and Czechoslovakia from the time she was four, and saw it as perfectly natural too. So while I was prepared for missions to the persecuted church, and uh, my wife was also, and she, in fact, encouraged me and never held me back in 32 years. So uh, it was a wonderful uh, a, a partnership that we could focus on the persecuted church. Eastern Europe, in fact, uh, on my honeymoon, I went Bible smuggling with my parents-in-law and my new bride uh, into Eastern Europe. And we were literally going into Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Romania, Hungary, ministering um, and delivering Bibles and, and so on to the people uh, on our honeymoon. So uh, right from the beginning, that was how my family was, was um, 
constructed that we were concerned for serving the persecuted. It seemed the most natural thing to my wife. It seemed the most natural thing to me. And it must be bizarre and strange to many others, but Africa and uh, our background, God did, I suppose, uniquely prepare us for this. Well, uh, this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because uh, we might wonder about what Africans think now is romantic, if that's what you do on your honeymoon. Hey, you have faced, as I said a little earlier, you've been stabbed. Uh, You've been under aerial bombardment. Uh, You've been tortured. In fact, as I recall, last time we were talking, you were telling me about being waterboarded. Uh, Sometimes we might think if we're going through times of persecution that even result in torture, that uh, perhaps we survive, uh, perhaps just by the skin of our teeth, that somehow or other we'd give away missions work. This is the sort of thing that somehow seems to have compounded your calling, compounded your passion for actually being involved in missions. Is that what persecution can do to you when you put up with those sorts of things? An ounce of experience is worth a ton of theory, and uh, there's nothing quite like meeting the persecuted church. They've changed my way of thinking, Eastern Europe, uh, Africa. Just take um, my unavoidable uh, detention in uh, being unavoidably detained in, in Zambia back in 1987. October 87, arrested, imprisoned, interrogated in Zambia under Kenneth Gwanda. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, that happened at the same time as the Commonwealth Conference up in Vancouver when the president of Zambia, whose guest we were as a presidential detainee, was confronting Margaret Thatcher over his demand that she put sanctions on South Africa. And Margaret Thatcher said, why don't you put sanctions on South Africa? And he said, well, that would put Zambians out of work. And she said, well, exactly. And uh, started to point out all the different uh, things that South Africa is doing for Zambia, including feeding the people, running the railways, airways, and all the rest. And uh, at the end, when he said, for human rights abuses, Margaret Thatcher, who are you to speak about human rights abuses? You are the unelected dictator of a one-party state. You have four British missionaries locked up, detained, tortured right now by your security force without trial. And she brought up our facts. Well, interestingly, while it looked like a bad situation, so much good came out of that uh, traumatic time in Lusaka Central Prison. We met people who became the next government of Zambia. When I went back to Zambia, I came back as a VIP, a wisp past customs. Uh, friends that we'd made in, in uh, prison were now in government. Uh, General Godfrey Meander was vice president, and he'd been locked up in Lusaka Center. We became good friends. He encouraged me to produce the Biblical Principles for Africa book, which he made sure every member of parliament received had me running Biblical worldview seminars and the teacher training colleges uh, on national TV, all sorts of opportunities. And Zambia became from a place where we had been in prison before, now became a place of ministry training missionaries to go out to every neighboring country around Zambia, which is a very centrally located place. So many good things happened there, so many testimonies. For example, General Ronnie Shikapashwa, he was head of the Zambian Air Force. He was crippled in a car accident. He is told he'd never walk again. His wife was converted. He was converted. He was healed. He became Minister of Home Affairs, Minister of Foreign Affairs, organized many ministry opportunities for us. You know, we could not have imagined when we were being dragged in chains and shackled and handcuffed and put into filthy cells covered in human filth and all the rest. We couldn't have imagined what good things God would bring out of it. There's no doubt what they meant for evil, God used for good. God can work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Let's come back to those unprecedented developments you were sharing about Sudan and South Sudan, how religious freedom is now available and uh, the evil dictator who was in charge for 30 years is now on trial and the opportunities for the gospel are there. When we hear about all of the wonderful stories of revival in sub-Saharan Africa, is it your anticipation, Peter, that places like Sudan and Mozambique are areas that can open up and have the same sort of revival potential as what's happened in sub-Saharan Africa? Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. In fact, you know, more Muslims are coming to Christ in Sudan than we know of anywhere else. And there's a phenomenal amount of people, group movements in the Muslim Middle East, in Iran, many Muslims are coming to Christ. House church is exploding. In, in Algeria, there's tremendous amount of, of growth in the church. And in Sudan, I know of whole companies, even on occasions, battalions who came across the border and said, we want to fight for the South. Um, we want to become Christians. And so I've met these people who used to be in the Sudan army who have joined the South, and they were repelled by the atrocities of the National Islamic Front government, and they were attracted by the courage and the tenacity and the sheer bravery of these Christians in the South. And so uh, there's amazing growth. Uh, we, we are seeing in Africa, there's not much apathy. There's there's war zones, uh, there's Islam, there is communism, there's animism. I mean, there's no doubt secular humanism. These are all part of the world war of worldviews. It's a, it's a colossal conflict for the battle of the soul of the continent. But in Africa, the church is growing phenomenally. Do you know there's over 500 million people in Africa call themselves Christians, which is about half the total population. Now, 40% of the population of Africa especially in North Africa, are Muslim. But something like 50% of Africa claim to be Christians. Now, I should add, according to Operation World, 100 million churchgoers in Africa don't even have a Bible or a New Testament. Not not even a New Testament. 100 million churchgoers. So the, the situation is that the church has grown very fast in Africa, but there's not enough Bibles, there's not enough leaders. One whole province in Zambia, the eastern province, we found of Several hundred Baptist churches, there was only one pastor who had any Bible college training at all. So that's where we put a Bible college, planted, started Covenant College back in 1999 in Petioka there in eastern Zambia to train pastors with a three-year full program and studying the Bible uh, to provide leadership training. So this has been some of our highest priorities in, in our mission, Bibles and Bible teaching, because literature and leadership training are, are some of the greatest needs in Africa. The church is growing fast. But as some have said, the church is miles wide and inches deep. Well, in many cases, it's a lack of leadership and lack of literature. But we are trying with libraries for pastors, textbooks for teachers, uh, Bibles uh, for Africa. Uh, our ministry is trying to, to do what we can strategically and getting into the field to some of the most um, inaccessible rural areas where the needs are so much greater. And that's where we find the hunger for the gospel is the greatest. Church is overwhelmingly packed. I've had services of four, five, six hours. I've had a 13-hour church service in Africa. Prayer meetings, hunger, people on their knees, seeking the Lord, enthusiastically going into the streets to do evangelism. I know that revivals are not churches filled with people. It's people filled with God. But we've seen this. I've, I've had seminars in the Congo with thousands of people coming to a biblical worldview seminar for three-day seminar. Leader, leaders, including judges and generals and uh, leaders in government, are coming to a biblical worldview seminar. And so, yes, 
I think people hear a lot of news of what the devil's doing in Africa, but they don't generally hear what God's doing in Africa. We're still increased God's grace increased much more. The church is growing dynamically, as you say. Some say the church spirituality is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Is there a real need if there's such a lack of Bibles? Uh, no doubt there's a challenge there in raising up leaders. As I understand it, uh, the church is growing faster in Africa than you can raise up pastors. So the challenge really is there to get teaching and discipleship for the people. Is that one of the problems you can see uh, more broadly across the African church? Definitely, you've described it very well. That That is the major problem. The church has grown so fast, we have not had enough leadership base to, to um, really disciple the people adequately. So we're having to use every method possible. Obviously, radio is very important. Obviously, audiovisual materials are key. Not everyone is literate. Using film evangelism, using uh, audio Bibles, uh, th- this is also important for people who are blind, but there's people who are illiterate, so we're using the uh, gospel recordings, uh, gospel messengers with flip charts and teaching tapes that match up. and So we, we try to be creative in, in, in uh, mass evangelism and uh, audiovisual materials, such as using the Jesus film. And we used to use a 16-millimeter projector and generators. Now we use solar panels and uh, uh, video projectors. So uh, things are changing as the technology is improving. But still, there's an army of evangelists that need to be trained and equipped and that's why we run great commission courses uh, every year and our next one's coming up in january where we do intensive missionary training programs which includes body mind and spirit physical mountain climbing daily outreaches practicals exams uh, lectures yes workshops practicals but very hands-on boots on the ground and uh, trying to uh, prepare um, like the Lollards of uh, Wycliffe in England, going out as the field workers of the Reformation, Africa is ripe for back to the Bible Reformation and spiritual revival. But we need a lot more literature and a lot more leadership. Uh, and this means the most strategic thing we can do is to train leaders, train leaders to train leaders. We need a ministry of multiplication like evangelism explosion of Dr. James Kendi. You know, this multiplicity of we cannot expect people to come to church and expect the pastor to do all the ministry. The church must be where we are prepared for the work of ministry. And I love it when you sometimes get to a church and on the outside, uh, on the door leading to outside the church, you're now entering the mission field. I think that's a wonderful thing to remind that it should be the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. Now, I know you don't take up offerings uh, and you do have some supporters for the good work that you're doing, Peter, and getting Bibles into uh, sometimes very difficult to get to places in Africa. Uh, Just to give listeners the website where they can connect with you. And uh, while they're on that website, they might want to check out uh, some of your books uh, where you've specialised in missiology and reformation history, missions history, Islamic studies, the 19th century missionary movement, the 16th century reformation, Sudan, Rhodesia and South African history. And so for listeners to connect with Dr. Peter Hammond, here is the website frontlinemissionsa.org frontlinemissionsa.org and the way you're describing things today Peter no doubt uh, you could do with an extra friend or two and there'll be some Aussies who might want to connect with you and be involved in the good work that you're doing in the hard places 
in Africa. We're, we're heartened to hear that there is some breakthrough, that there's some unprecedented religious freedom, that people are open in nations like Sudan and Mozambique, and we'll be prayerful that those things will continue to open up. But that website is frontlinemissionsa.org. Dr. Peter Hammond, thanks so much for sharing an update and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you so much, mate. God bless Australia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.